It might be cold out there, but that doesn't mean I don't have camping on my mind. Two opportunities are coming up, and you can join me because I'll be at both of them with a 20% flash sale versus Man Camp. It's a weekend primitive camping experience for guys. It comes this October, and maybe you can't wait that long. That's all right, because there's Couples Camp, a camping experience for married couples. That's coming this spring at the end of April. Both camps are in Southeast Ohio, and I can't wait for both of them. They're like a highlight weekend for me or weekends for me. A 20% off flash sale is happening February 19th to March 1st. If you want more information and all the relevant links, go to crossroads.net slash camps. I'll see you out there. Welcome to the Aggressive Life I got to tell you, I want to encourage you today, make sure you listen to this whole episode because I know a good percentage of us are going to turn this off and you're going to be ticked off. That's the aggressive life I would say. You're going to turn it off and you're going to be pissed off because you're not going to like some of the things that are said today. You're not going to like some of the conclusions that are going to be kicked around. You're not going to like some of the, there's a lot of things that a lot of people are not going to like today. That's why it's called the aggressive life. This isn't called the affirming life. It's called the aggressive life. So hang in there, go through the whole thing and uh, maybe God grows you a little bit. Now on to the aggressive life. You know, when it comes to creating a legacy, two things are true. One, it's never too late to begin, and if you're still breathing, you've not reached the finish line. I've got a real special one today. Of course, I always say that I have a special one, but this one is uh, really, really special. We've got a man who has come from a man who has created one of the greatest legacies in the world, or at least in my time. I've spent a good bit of time over in South Africa over the last several years. Uh, the church I lead, is, which is my day job, has sent uh, hundreds, thousands of people, maybe thousands, at least hundreds and hundreds of people over to South Africa to do some mission trip stuff. We were very, very heavily engaged in the AIDS crisis. In the late 90s, we started and onward when the government of South Africa was not stepping into the crisis that was with their people. We, uh, we built the largest privately funded AIDS hospice, which then failed a few years later. <laughs> uh, yeah, one of our most shining failures. But I'm a huge, huge South African fan. So the first time I went over to South Africa on, on the world's longest flight, you can't get a worse flight than Cincinnati, Ohio to South Africa. It just goes on and on and on. It is seriously, at the time, it was the longest flight in the world. And I read a book on the way over, which was Nelson Mandela's autobiography. And I thought, man, this guy is unbelievable. Maybe God might smile on me someday to be able to meet this man. Unbelievable man. And I guess God didn't smile at me. I never met him before he died. But guess what? I get to talk to his grandson today, Endaba, Endaba Mandela, all the way from South Africa. How are you doing? I'm good, brother. How you doing? I'm doing very, very good. It's really odd. You mentioned somebody like Nelson Mandela, your grandfather, and, and he's probably one of the people that 
probably doesn't need an introduction. We're going to introduce you. We are introducing you, but maybe just in case there's been anybody who's been under a rock or we just need to be reminded of his unbelievable legacy, uh, why don't you give us just a, a thumbnail sketch of, uh, of your grandfather's life and accomplishments? My grandfather, Nelson Mandela, grew up in rural parts of South Africa, was born in 1918. By the time he was 24, he had moved to Johannesburg and had joined an organization known as the African National Congress. He then studied to become one of the first black lawyers in South Africa. He then uh, defended black people against the apartheid system for absolutely free. He was the first black lawyer with his style of actually going into court, speaking in a loud, bold voice, looking straight at the magistrates. And of course, they hated him from then. And he then later became the leader of the African Youth League, um, which wanted better leadership that was truly representing the hopes and aspirations of the young Africans. And for his troubles, you know, he went into a what they call a Rivonia trial, which was a treason trial. He had committed treason against the state uh, because he was truly just fighting for his God-given rights that he wanted the state to represent for him and his black people. And then for that trouble, he got to, he was sentenced to life in prison, 27 years. He spent 27 years in prison before he came out of jail. And when everybody thought now he had the power to yield the movement of South African people, he said, peace, love, and unity. Let us throw our guns in the ocean. Those were his exact words. Let us throw our guns in the ocean. Let us build a new rainbow nation and became the first democratically elected president of South Africa in 1994 and only decided to take one term, not two like most presidents, because he saw that in Africa, a lot of presidents had difficulty in removing or following the democratic process and leaving the the number one seat after serving two terms. And after he retired in 1999, he dedicated his life through his foundation by building over 400 schools and hospitals across the nation. And sadly, he passed away in 2013. Do you have many memories with your grandfather? A lot of us didn't spend much time with our grandfather. Did you spend much time with Nelson Mandela? I did. You know, I was very lucky because he came and picked me up. Uh, When I was 11 years old, I was still living with my parents in what we call the hood, which was in Soweto, which was a township uh, where in 1964, the apartheid government uh, decided that all black people should not live in Johannesburg City, but should live on the outskirts. So they removed them to 30 kilometers outside of the city to a place called Soweto. So there's a play on the words Southwestern Townships. If you take the first two letters of each word that spells Soweto, but also they said, so where to? Where are they taking us? So where to? Where do we go? So it's a play on the words. And um, that's where he picked me up when I was 11 years old. And he sent my, uh, you know, my uh, parents to university and he took me in and he raised me basically since I was 11 years old. Wow. Significant time with my grandfather. Yeah, it's race has been a problem all across the world. It doesn't matter what country you're in, what what skin tone you have. 
everyone wants to look at somebody as being inferior to them. And we've certainly got our race problems in the United States still. But I'll tell you, the stuff that happened in South Africa is a bit different than what hap- has happened around the country. Uh, as Ndeba just mentioned, it was <laughs> townships aren't the townships that we know in America. They're places that were meant to be temporary holding places. And they're just permanent places now, which has anything from some nice homes to it to still cardboard and tin shacks. It's it's really, really striking. And p- apartheid, your, your people, those of you who are black, uh, in America even, I say black and it's it's like people, well, you should say they're African. Well, I learned all my times going over to South Africa, there's actually was a ranking in terms of your skin tone, white, colored, and black. Um, those of you who are black, you made up what, is it 90% of the country? It's 80% of the country. Okay. So, and, and when your grandfather was in, biz, in, in jail at Robben Island, it was 80% then as well? So what they did, they basically separated the races. According to international standards, it would be approximately um, 87% black because we have 13% which are white population. But basically the black, they've also, they've separated us because apartheid was all about separation. They have coloreds, which are mixed race people, right? Normal terms, those are black people, right? But then they separated those who are colored, who are mixed race, and said those are colored. And then they also removed the Indian people and put them separately. But the black people, as the world knows it, is 87% of the actual population. In America, people who have more brown skin tones have it harder than those of us who are white, like myself. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm white. I'm, I'm white all day. <laughs> I'm very, very white, especially in the wintertime when I haven't had been in the sun for a while. I am extremely white. But it's really crazy to think about a country where those who have darker st- skin tones are in the vast, vast majority, vast, vast majority, and at that time had no power and were oppressed in a significant way. How's that how's that feeling for you now Endeba in your in your country because you now have uh, you, you you're in the ruling class and you, those laws that were keeping you separated have pretty much been abolished. Yet it's a hard road to get back to where you want to be. How, how are things going right now on the ground in South Africa? Well, it's still it's still tough for the majority of black people even though we have as you call the ruling party, right? We have the government who are in power, which is a majority black government. Uh, economically, we are still at the back foot. You see, many of our people during apartheid did not have the privilege of going to uh, higher uh, institutions of education. And so we're very much kept as subservient laborers or you know, not being able to go higher than a clerk or a nurse, right? So when we became free in 1990, and then actually became a independent state, democratically president in 94, there were still a lot of economic challenges that we still have today. And unfortunately, like most governments, ours is one that is very much uh, challenged with high amount of corruption. Hmm. Corruption is another thing that all governments have to deal with. You know, some higher, some worse than others. But it's our own black leaders today who are corrupt and taking all the resources and not allowing them to filter down 
to the people that need it the most. So our biggest challenge right now is really how do we, you know, include our people in the economy? So they're talking about economic inclusivity. And I say, before you talk about economic inclusivity, how about we talk about economic literacy, right? And so that is one of the biggest challenges that our country faces today. Yes, we have broken down the laws. We can live where you want to live. You can, you know, apply to any institution that you want to apply to, provided you can afford it, which is another level of discrimination. The class system, which is very prevalent across the world today. What I was so frequently astounded by with your grandfather and now with you, just in our few minutes together as I look at you on Zoom, is a man who had every reason to be bitter, angry, never smile, was a guy who just seemed to smile all the time. And I'm looking at you and you're, you're smiling, you're chuckling, you, you, you've, you've been dealt a bad hand, your people in many, many ways. You've got some significant challenges, more than enough reason to be bitter and angry and vindictive. And yet with your grandfather and you, there's a I don't know, what's the word, word? joy, uh, peace, uh, lightness? How can that be? Well, I think we also learned from my grandfather when he came out and he threw away his bitterness. And he said, as long as I continued harboring that bitterness and anger, I would still be in jail. So I am very lucky and privileged because I grew up with my grandfather. He was able to send me to a good education and good school. And he taught me that, Daba, you are a leader, and therefore you have a responsibility to look after the interests of your people. So you are a mouthpiece for those who cannot talk, and you need to stand taller for those who cannot stand for themselves. So we cannot be moping around and sad and angry. What are we actually going to do about it? It's better to do it with a smile, with your shoulders a little bit, you know, leaning back, then all tensed up, you know, in the front. <laughs> right. And so he would drill that value into you multiple times. He did. He did. Um, you know, he actually sat me down, not sat me down, but we were having dinner the one time. And he actually said to me, Daba, you need to get the best marks in class. I say, huh? He says, Daba, you are a leader. Therefore, you need to get the best marks in class. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. the pressure, the pressure. You know, but I realized later that that pressure is actually good. But if you think about the process in which diamonds are made, right, it's a lot of pressure, right, through the coal. And then all of a sudden, through that pressure, you, it creates diamonds. And, you know, later on, I realized that he was putting the pressure on me because I do have this obligation, this responsibility, because I'm in a privileged position to actually be a leader. And what is a leader? A leader is a person who serves it's not somebody who boasts to say, I'm number one. I have the best. I have the most. No, a leader is there to serve his community. So it's important that young people understand that the pressure that your parents put on you is because they want to see you succeed. They love you. And therefore, it is their duty to challenge you to become the better version of yourself. Oh, that's good. That ties into the name of our podcast here, <clears throat> The Aggressive Life. What I'm hearing is your your grandfather was aggressive with you. It wasn't like, well, you just find your way and live your life and you'll figure it out. I'm gonna let... He was aggressively saying, this is who you are. I meet so many parents today who are afraid 
to aggressively tell their kids who they are. Give your kids their identity. Tell them who they are. Don't let them discover it on their own. They'll discover that they're not very good. Uh, I, I love hearing that. And your grandfather was pouring into you that way and pushing you that way. That That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and he, he never stops uh, till the end. Um, you know, the beautiful thing about him, he never never said, go become a lawyer or you must study and become a politician. What he told me was, Daba, you need to make sure you get the best education you can because we did not have the opportunity to have this great education. So do not take it for granted. You know, many of my white colleagues who, when I finished high school, wanted to go and took a year off and they traveled and they do peace jobs here and there. Now, I asked my grandfather if I could do the same. And he said, hell no, you are not going to do that. You are going to go straight to university. You do not have time to waste. You must get your degree. And after you get your degree, you must get your honors. And when you get your honors, you must get your master's. Because we never had this opportunity. So don't you dare take it for granted, my boy. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and, and Deb has got a whole book entitled Going to the Mountain, Life Lessons from My Grandfather. But your grandfather has set you up. This isn't just about your grandfather today. He set you up. All of these things have made a profound impact on you. You're recognized as one of the 28 men of change by BET. You're the co-founder and chairman of Africa Rising, an organization committed to publicizing the positive image to Africa in our world. You, you, you're you on a mission, man. You're, you're kicking ass and taking names. <laughs> well, brother, um, you know, like my grandfather set me up to say, you have to do something outside of yourself. Yes, it's great for you to get all these accolades, but what are you doing for your community? Um, and you know, he's got a quote where he says, when a man has done enough for his community, only then can he decide that he can rest. So yes, it's important to become a billionaire and be successful and be known all over the world. How many billionaires did you create in your path to, be, to finding your own greatness? So my path is to make sure that others are able to find their own greatness as we consciously light our own fire and courage, we unconsciously give others the courage to light their own fire. And that is the path that I'm on. I tried to get us away from your grandfather, talk about you, and you immediately were able to quote something your grandfather said to you. And I'm just reminded that there's just a power when a man builds into another man. There's just a power in a voice of a father figure, whether he is our father, he's our grandfather, or whether he is just somebody we look up to. There's a power with a man calling something out in another man. There's just something that a man can do for another man that a woman can't do. I know some women will get really upset about that. I am pro-woman. Women are incredibly powerful. I'm thankful for all the voices of women in my life, but there's something about a man who says something to me that can change my trajectory like a female voice will not. Do you agree with that? I agree with you 100%. Now, when we look at the black community, not only in South Africa, but even in America too, most of us, lucky for me, I grew up with a father. Actually, I had my father and my grandfather. But majority of us grew up with our mother. And, you know, we grew up in a system that had migrant laborers. So they broke down the family unit. 
you know, where our fathers had to go for one year and work, you know, in the mines, in the fields, and in the cities, you know, and so they broke down our system. Now, when you have, when you look at majority of the problems that we have in our society, they are coming from the very males that are lost. When you look at HIV/AIDS, when you look at the rape that is happening in our society, it's mostly committed by men. Most of our social ills revolve around men because there's that base, there's that aggression, there's that vigor and that energy that you receive from another man that says, oh, you've gone too far, my boy, you better, you better take a step back. Yes, we know that mothers have also been able to raise really magnificent men and leaders in our community. But if you look at those that had their fathers, you will see there's a, there's a slight difference, not having to prove yourself consistently, right? Because you can, you, can, you can assert yourself as a man without the aggression, that physical uh, physique of, of, of entrenching yourself, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in your community, or even in, in, in your study or at, at your workplace. So for us, if you think about it, even a relationship that is formed for a girl, her relationship with her boyfriend will be based on her relationship or lack thereof with her father. So you see the father's position in a child's life is very intrinsic to their growth, to how they see the world and to how they relate with others. It reminds me of a story that I uh, mentioned in one of my books, I think it was Five Marks of a Man, about in your national parks, you've got Polonisburg and Kruger, which are the huge national parks where, oh, I don't know what it was, maybe 15 years ago, there were some some elephants that were being relocated and wreaking havoc. Are you are you familiar with that story? I'm not too familiar with it, no. This is fascinating. So I heard this story and I thought, that has to be made up. And so I went down the rabbit hole and, no, oh, it's like real. So what happened was, uh, I can't believe, remember it was Polonisburg or Kruger. One of them had a dearth of, um, of elephants. They needed elephants. And the other national park had a lot of elephants. So they said, well, let's just move some elephants over to this other one. And so they got all the helicopter and the rigging and they moved these elephants, a bunch of them over to the other park. And they would think problem solved. We're balancing out the ecosystem and everything is good. Well, what they found is these new elephants that went, I think it was to Polonisburg, they found that they were goring the white rhinos. They were, they were killing the white rhinos. Wow. It was a really, really awkward thing. And so the, the biologist came in and tried to figure out why they were killing the white rhinos. What was that? Because it was like, it was, it was joy killing. There, it was like the equivalent of in America when I used to smash mailboxes when I was in high school. It was, it was that kind of thing. And as they dug into it, they realized they had only brought over the smaller elephants because they didn't have rigging harnesses that could support the largest elephants, only the smallest ones. And so the smallest ones were acting out of this immature adolescent behavior. They were frustrated because the female elephants were saying, you're not ready to have sex with me yet. And they were frustrated. They were just taking out their aggressions. So this was the theory. And they thought, what happens if we bring over some big bull, uh, find a bigger harness and bring some bull elephants over and drop them in? And so they did. They brought these huge bulls over. I think it was like five of them or something like that, dropped them over. And one of these, uh, as the story goes, one of these young buck elephants tried to like, insert his, his, his strength. And the, I can't remember the name of this well-known elephant. He's 
bashed, he bashed this, this smaller elephant that was basically an adolescent that was killing rhinos for fun, bashed him with his tux, knocked him over on, on his side, and the problem ch- changed like that. They, at that moment, ama- they all they all slotted in underneath these bull elephants, and the problem was solved because daddy was in the house. That's right. That's right. You know, just the mere presence of a dad. You don't have to be the best dad of the year, taking your kids out, you know, to parks and to recreation centers every weekend. No, just your mere presence. You know, the elders ask me, Daba, what is the what is the secret of being a good father? And I say, your presence. Mm. Just your mere presence is enough as a father to really as to 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 form that relationship and to build strong character and adolescents who will become responsible citizens. In America, we've got our problems with masculinity. We have a lot of physically absent fathers or emotionally absent fathers who are in love with their corporate life more than they're in love with their family. It's a, it's a big problem over here. And we've got another problem along with that in that we don't have any of the ancient practices that men have had in other cultures and still exist in some cultures today. Like there's no rite of passage into manhood. You, you never know when you're a man. You have to keep trying to prove it to all the other boys. And normally we prove it through bragging about our sexual exploits or we prove it through our drunkenness or prove it through buying yet another car, yet another home, something to kind of prove our manliness. Because there's nothing where a father figure tells us, you are a man. You still have that, though, in South Africa, do you not? At least in some parts of your country, you, you still have swearing-in ceremonies where men tell boys you're now a man? Yes, we do. And actually, I went through a circumcision process and uh, ritual that we do in our culture, uh, where we actually, it's a physical removal of the foreskin. And it's a whole tradition. It, the first thing that happens is, of course, they cut the foreskin with a a very sharp spear. This is done in the kraal where the cows live. And then the rest of the time you spend the healing and learning about your ancestry and your history. And after about six weeks, when you finally healed, then you come out and there's a huge ceremony within your community and everybody comes and you actually get given a new name. So for us, it's not about how many cars you have or how many girls you have. It's about how many years have you been a man? And that begins with that new ceremony when they name you and they give you a new name to say you have endured the pain because in our culture we say a man endures. Mm. You do not cry about it. You do not go running away from it. You have to endure. That is what a man does. Wow. And how old were you when this took place? When I did it, I was 20 years old. 20 years general- old? 20 yeah. years you let someone cut the end of your dick off at 20 years old. Well, I had no choice. You know, this was done to my older brother. It was done to my father. His wow. father, his father, his father, you know? Wow. Gosh. Yeah. I, I hate to ask a gory question, but I will. I mean, what, what's this like? Is there, do they give you any anesthesia? Do they ice up the end of your penis? They do, what, what, what goes on there? So nothing actually happens. They basically, you go into the crawl where the cows stay. They strip off all your clothes, okay? And then uh, you have to sit down on a rock and um, uh. they tell you, cough. <laughs> oh. Then you have to look to the east where the sun sets. I mean, where the sun rises in the east, right? Uh. As you're looking to the east, 
before you know it, you just feel a burning sensation from your from your manhood all the way to the back of your spine, and it comes up to the back of your spine. And obviously, you're gonna look down where this pain is coming from, and you'll see drops of blood coming, and then and then they slap you, and they say, "Say I'm a man three times," and you have to say three times, and then they 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 push your head. And you must look to the west now, right where the sun sets, and then that's when they. <clears throat> tie it up, but they tie it up with a special uh, plant called isitwe. Now, isitwe is a big leaf that has tiny hairs on it. And these tiny hairs has medicine, so it sticks onto your wound. And can you imagine now you have to remove this leaf every, you know, 24 to 48 hours, and you can imagine the excruciating pain of removing this, this leaf that is your medicine, by the way. Um, and they put the medicine and then they, you know, wrap that up in a in a in, in a, a goat's, you know, skin. And obviously I can't tell more details than that, but it's really about enduring the pain mm. that you go through this period. And some traditions, the boys are going in as young as 15, 16, which I am against because the reason why they made it 18 and why they made it not when you are born, when you are an infant, is because you are not ready to be responsible to take on the responsibilities of a man. So that's why in our culture we do it when you're 18 or above. But some cultures do it when you're 15, 16, 17. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'm sitting here with my legs crossed right now. I can't imagine <laughs> I can't I can't imagine that that whole scene is now, I, as you, and I've never heard circumcision described that um, that graphically. Thank you for doing that. I'm thinking if that happened to me, <laughs> that pain would have seared a memory in my mind like nothing else would have. I probably, I don't know, are you then, does that make a more significant manhood ceremony out of it because you can never forget it? Not necessarily, not necessarily. You see, unfortunately, there, there are some problems that it has created within our community. One is that many of the boys, you know, because there's one particular important ceremony that takes place at, at your naming, on your naming day, you also get, um, they, they gather all the, all the men uh, in, the, in the village to come and give you words of wisdom. What a lot of them said to me is that just because you're a man does not mean you must go home now and bully your mother and bully your father because you are physically stronger than them. You have the responsibility to look after their well-being. And a lot of them take it to the head and they actually start, you know, um, causing uh, chaos within their home. Another, another, There's also another bunch who actually run away mm. and never finish the ceremony because the pain is too much, Right. And those men are never really accepted in the in the community as men. In our culture, when we have traditional ceremonies, such as a wedding or a funeral, the way we are served, so the old men will sit together, the young men will sit together, the women will sit together, and the children will sit together. And that's how we get served. And that's how much meat you will receive, depending whether you are a young man, an older man, or you're just a child. And so also, as you know, we have a huge problem with HIV AIDS. Now it is believed that a circumcised uh, penis is actually more hygienic 
than one that is not circumcised. And so which contributes to the whole spreading of the HIV AIDS. And so across the country, uh, promoting young boys and young men who are not necessarily Tosa, who are not in our tradition to actually get circumcised. You have a book on this. It's called Going to the Mountain. And I'll, I'll read you a quote or read all of our listeners a quote. You say, my grandfather lived his life as an example I couldn't ignore. He showed me no ritual could make a boy a man. The ritual is merely an outward expression of an inner transformation. Talk more about that. That is correct. So basically, as you grow up as a young man, you are taught many lessons by your elders. But it is up to you then, when you are out in the world, to actually show your understanding of those lessons that you've been taught in the way in which you treat yourself and the way you treat your community. And so when I was talking about this particular quote, I was really, you know, talking about how we as young men not only go to the mountain and become a man, but how do you continually become a man, treating yourself in a man, having your, you know, goals that you want to achieve? And more importantly, what kind of man are you? And how does your society value you as an individual? Building on that, you also write, my grandfather saw the good man in me and refused to let up until I saw that man in the mirror. That's a great quote. That is a beautiful quote. And as much as you aspire, myself, I aspire to become like Nelson Mandela. I cannot be the one to say, I am uh, Nelson Mandela's grandson. Therefore, you should give me the respect just because I am his grandson. It is up to me to lay the groundwork, to lay out those uh, goals, and to actually go out there and try to achieve them. You know, when I look at myself in the mirror and I'm honest with myself, do I see a Nelson Mandela in the near future? Do I see myself going past Nelson Mandela? Who is it do I truly see when I look at myself in that mirror? The reason I'm stimulated by your work and what you're saying right now is I feel like as American Americans, and most of us who are listening to this are in America, I just feel like we're, we're soft. I feel like we're entitled. I feel like we are looking for somebody else to make our life better and looking to play the blame game. You just keep laying down these truth bombs that make me look at my own life and stop sniveling at my own weaknesses or my own difficulties and just see there's a, there's a different way if I get beyond my excuses. And quotes from your book, I just want to read some of these. Uh, and then after I read it, uh, just keep going for us because I feel like you've, you're a deep well here that many of us are drinking from. So here we go. Here's another one. <clears throat> My grandfather and other members of the ANC, African National Congress, were prepared to die for ideas, but more importantly, they're prepared to live for them. They were prepared to live for their ideas because this is what they strive for on a daily basis. To die for something is something that's honorable, but to live for something is something that you have to strive for on a daily basis, not something that you're going to be remembered for 
for something that you did on one particular occasion. Oh, he once won the championship belt in karate. No. What was his life like on a daily basis, right? When you die, are they going to say, oh, he drove that Ferrari so well? Or they're going to say, he was such a good father. He was such a good husband because he would do this on a weekly, daily, monthly basis to show that he cared. And he was able to exude that in his daily living and his beliefs and how he was actually able to become part of that community. And their part of that community is not to say that they are the leaders, but how are they influencing and directing younger people than themselves to show them to lead by example. The tallest tree catches the harshest wind. If nobody's mad at you, you say, you write, you're probably not doing anything brave or important. In other words, if you're not getting canceled, then something's wrong with you. (laughs) Well, yes, my friend. You see, those of us who are bestowed with the most privilege and the most gifts have the higher responsibility of doing more and bringing more value to our community than others. And so because I'm in a privileged position, because I stand taller than others, I have to catch the hardest wind, right? People are gonna look at me and expect me to be a leader and to do more. So it is me as a privileged person, as the tallest person who has more responsibility than those who are below me. The tallest tree catches the hardest wind. This generation of men has the power to recreate culture, to be good fathers who have good fathers and raise good fathers. Again, we look at the history of our country where many of our families were ripped apart by migrant laws and taken away from our families, growing up in single uh, mother-headed uh, household or single-parent households, you know, we have the responsibility to reverse that cycle. We have the responsibility to show a new face of the new generation of African men. We must remember that the relationship that the girl will have one day with her boyfriend, with the husband, is modeled off the relationship that she had with her father. And so presence in our child's life, in our society's life, one that is constructive, one that is valuable, that adds value, and not always takes away, is the pinnacle of us building a greater society. I'm hoping you can give us the story of where this next quote came from and what it means for you. Uh, you, I, uh, you got in some public trouble and your grandfather looked at you And he said, your name is your name, but who are you? Your name is your name, but who are you? Do you mind telling us what led up to that quote and what he was trying to say with that? So basically, Daba Mandela, you have this great name that everybody recognizes around the country, around Africa, around the world. You are part of this great legacy and lineage. But when we strip away the name, who are you? as an individual? Who are you as a father? Who are you and what do you represent? What are you passionate about? 
what drives you, what makes you wake up in the morning, and what is it that you want to change about the world today, and how do you go about communicating that, right? Forget Mandela, who is Ndaba? And a lot of the time when I introduce myself, I don't actually mention my last name. I mention my name is Ndaba. How is it? How, how do I meet you? And a lot of people later when they find out who I am, they're very shocked because some of my family members do not you know, see the world themselves. They rather live in the namesake. Our grandfather never forced us to go into politics or to become lawyers, right? But what he wanted us to do was to be able to have a great education so that we can have analytical minds, we can think for ourselves, and we can make the decisions to walk in the right path. Whether it's his path, but it has to be a righteous path. So when I strip away your name and your lineage and where you come from and what you've got, and what do you believe in? Yeah, I think that would be a a tough tension to be in a in a place where you know your grandfather and your father all of us as men and women we want to set a foundation for our kids to exceed us we want to build something so they can climb up on our back that's that that's good and admirable to to want their name and use that as a launching point and i could see how that would be maybe sometimes difficult because you want to be your own man. You don't want to be, uh, you don't want to be answering questions all the time about your grandfather. You want to be answering questions about, about yourself because God's doing a unique thing in you. How do you, how do you handle not going crazy or getting schizo over that? Well, I've been lucky, you know, because he did take me in when I was a young boy uh, from 11 years old. And so I, I did very much struggle with that for a large part of my adolescence. But, you know, I ultimately figured out that, yes, we may still be upholding his vision and listening to his words of wisdom, but we have different challenges. And in the light of these different challenges, what is the vision that I've crafted? And so for me, is that how has my grandfather, he's, he's, he's carried the torch, you know, walked through the finish line for his generation, and now he's passing over the baton to the next generation to carry on that same fight, but it's gonna be done in a different way. So that's how I see it personally, to say they've broken the physical chains, but now we have mental chains to fight because they're much harder. It's no longer the, the, the cop who's your enemy. It's no longer the judge who's your enemy. But now the enemy exists within ourselves, within our minds, right? How do we aspire to become successful? What does success look like? Is it a destination? No, it is a journey of making sure that you're consistently making the right decisions as you are developing and growing in your own uh, life to achieve whatever success uh, means to you. And what is it? about your identity, right? Last, in those days before, when you went to the to the home affairs, uh, I think you guys call it, uh, what is it? Homeland? Homeland Security. Homeland Security. Or when you go to register your passport and you get your ID, your security, right? When I went there before, I say my name is Damandela, the, the, the person register will say, no, your name is Pete Van Donder. 
So now we have the rights that has been recognized under the law as equals. And how do we then continue to express our identity, but still aspire to reach success in a Western way? Because many of us become just like the master, right? We get a job, we study business, we become successful, and then you employ other black people to be your maid, to be your chef, etc., etc., and then you end up treating them the very same way the master used to treat the slave. So in actual fact, we haven't progressed in any way. So it is about our identity and self-expression to be able to still be within our roots and celebrate our culture, even though we have achieved Western success. So that's a thing. You do see um, yes. blacks who rise to a position that whites were in and then treating other people the way they were treated when they were down low. That's that, that's a thing? That is a thing across not just South Africa, but across the whole continent. Yeah, That is still a very big thing uh, that you find. And, you know, uh, a gentleman by the name of Franz Fanon talked about this phenomenon in the 60s, <laughs> which was a French uh, philosopher from Senegal. Well, I got some other questions for you, but I'm wondering, is there anything you want to talk about that we're not talking about? I, I, you're, you're very deep well with just great insights, and I don't want to be the one controlling the conversation. Is there, is there something here that you think we should be talking about that we're not talking about? Well, you know, I would like to talk about and, and, and tell the people that we're working on something very exciting, which we call the 100 Mandelas. The 100 Mandelas is a leadership program where we take in about 20 young uh, people of African origin from across the world. Uh, mainly 50% will come from America because our number one donor is American Express. And we put them in this program to think leadership in terms of how Nelson Mandela taught of leadership. So we have partnered with a lady called Anne Pratt, who was a former uh, lecturer at Harvard, who taught a, uh, a lesson on Mandela blueprint leadership to actually get these young people to understand the style and the principles of Nelson Mandela's leadership. That will be starting later this year. But one of the things that really um, upsets me or rather pains me in America, you know, you look at the, the, the NFL and what's happening in the NFL and the racism that has happened in the NFL since Colin Kaepernick's days and now there's a new story where we find the only black coach has been fired in the Miami Dolphins. And he's now having a, a, a court case against the NFL. And then we look at the NBA, where I believe 78% of the players are of African origin. Now, where is the unity amongst our brothers? It is clear that if we were able to band together, to come together, we would be able to strike and be able to cripple the NFL or the NBA. I will target the NFL because this is where the majority of issues actually are shown uh, in, 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 in American society. And it's, it is such a sham, you know, for me to see this lack of unity that has pervaded the American society, particularly within the African-American uh, population. There is no unity. And I believe it is the unity that is lacking that stops them from actually gaining critical mass and getting their word heard 
and changing and reforming some of the laws that are keeping our, our people back for so many decades. What, what, what would that look like? What kind of unity are, are you calling for there? For when Colin Kaepernick uh, was doing his kneeling down, right? Yeah. Taking the knee during the, during the, um, when they sang the national anthem. Not all the black players were actually doing that, right? It was only a handful of them. But if every single African player had to take a kneel, would they be actually be in a position to actually find those players? Because one thing is to have that connection. There was no solidarity and there was no unity, as far as I'm concerned, amongst the people of African origin in the NFL. That's the one thing that held them back from actually making any progress is what I feel. Yeah, that was certainly a pivotal pivotal moment that I think when most of us look back on that, we have different, we feel differently now about it, about it now than we might have then. The difficulty with that one when it happened is there was a lot of African-American players whose fathers served in the military and they saw that as there's the wrong the wrong time to protest because they saw it protesting their father in the military who honored the flag I and mean, that's how some of them saw it um right. that was a tough right. that, that was a tough deal but i think i think of all the vitriol and all of the the um anger that came Colin Kaepernick's way <laughs> i think most of us here years later can look at that and go yeah, there was some stuff going on there that we weren't really willing to see and embrace at that time. I'm saying us, those of us who are white. But there was also an opportunity to say, okay, you don't feel this is the right time to, to protest by kneeling. So when is the right time for us to actually show our dissatisfaction? There was an opportunity there that was missed, is what I feel. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. There's There was a lot of stuff that was that was there. So unity, let's get back to unity. So that, that's an example of how you feel there could have been unity. So how else today? Cause it looks to me like, um, there's more unity amongst those of darker shade skins and there has been the past, or do you disagree with that? Um, I don't know. I don't know, to be honest with you, because we look at this generation as far as, um, South Africa is concerned and many of the political, um, situations in, in Africa as the continent on the whole, we have a new generation, right, who are rising, right, who are tired of the old ways and who are tired of the old dogs who are at the helm, right? And I, I, I for one, am saying that the time for the old dogs is over, right? It's time for them to move on. But the problem that persists, that hinders us, is again lack of unity. We as young Black people in Africa are not supporting each other. And so if I raise my hand and say, I want to be the next leader, there's going to be 10, 15 others who are saying, let us all be the next leader. Why should you be a leader? Because of Mandela. So what I say is those 10, 15 others who want to be leaders, why can't we come together and decide amongst ourselves and say, what is your vision? What is your vision? Your vision? What is the best vision that we have now? If I am the one who's able to convince you guys that this is what we need right now, then we can all decide together, this is leader number one, this is leader number two, this is leader number three, and so on and so forth. But because we're in such vicious competition with each other, competition is a good thing, but not to the point where we're now, you know, attacking each other viciously without any um, respect and and, and giving each other that space. Um, So for me, again, it's that lack of unity 
that hinders us from actually making true progress. The difference between your situation and our situation in America is you and your um, your community, dark-skinned people, have always been in the majority, been impressed by the minority, have always been in the majority, and you will always be in the majority, whereas here in America, what's making it difficult or uh, tense, why there's tension right now in our culture is darker skin tone people have always been in the minority and now it's not too long until they're in the majority. I think the last stat I saw said 2030 or 2040, or maybe it's right. Actually, I think it's right now under the age of 18, dark skins um, are in the majority in America. So people who look like me have always seen most people who look like me in leadership and just around. And now in my lifetime, this has been predicted for decades and decades, but now it's coming. It's like, man, our, our seat of power, our seat of always having the best positions and stuff is coming to an end. Now it's not, it's not happening yet in the NFL because what you got one, one, two African-American coaches, <laughs> you know, it's with all of the African-American players, you have like no representation. The head coaches, relatively speaking, very low representation, general managers. I mean, it's very, very slow, but to be very, very clear, it is coming. You're not going to get away from it because the majority of the country is not going to look like me. And that brings a lot of tense dynamics. It does bring a lot of tense dynamics, but I say with solidarity, with unity, there is nothing we cannot overcome. Look at the, the riots that took place across America uh, last year. They had 18 countries across the world who marched and protested in their own respective countries who stood in solidarity with what was happening in America, right? Yep. You know, in America, we see the cycle where George Floyd happens. We all get riled up. We go and we protest. And then four weeks later, we go back to our normal lives until something else happens. Why have we not elected national leadership in, in America? There is no national leadership of the NAACP, or is it the, you know, which movement is going to lead the people nationally? Why are we not tracking what is happening to each and every single one of these cases? Did the cops get acquitted? Why, why are we not tracking what's happening to the uh, uh, to the reform in the social justice, right? In the criminal justice. Why are we not tracking these things? We have so much technology at our hands, and yet we cannot actually have a map of what is currently happening in America. We should have a, a map of America where you can see in real time, and they should see you, and they should say, they should show you all the red plaques where incidences have happened, and then there should be blue areas where they show you what are the legal um, you know, ramifications and and process that are taking place to rectify or to bring justice to those particular incidences. And then on the other hand, what is the general movement of our people? Because this movement of reforming the social justice system is not just a black thing. That is a thing for humanity in its, in its, in its whole. 
And Deba, this has been an aggressive conversation. I feel like we've pushed on some things that have been really refreshing and maddening. I can I can hear the emails coming to me already, <laughs> upset about X, Y, Z. And hey, I just remind all of our listeners, it's called the aggressive life. That's what this is. It's called the aggressive life. I wish you could see Endema. He's smiling and he's pointing his fingers. It's called the, you're, I hope you're not showing up here just to get like patted on the head for whatever you think right now. We're here to push you. And so I think we all got pushed a little bit today. Uh, I hope you're not going to get pushed to be circumcised if you're uh, uh, an adult, because that would be really, really tough. And by the way, I no, I am not going to circumcise you. I will not circumcise. I have no interest in that at all. But I do have an interest if those of you are male actually becoming a man. And, and Deba, you're a good man who's pushed us. And man, you're helping our world. I'm so, so thankful for you. Anything else you want to say? Anything, um, like just advertise yourself. If someone wants to read your books or follow up on with, with you on a website, just go ahead and push your stuff because some people might want to do that. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Ndaba Mandela, and you can find me on Instagram as Ndaba underscore Mandela. You can find me on Twitter, Ndaba Mandela, one word. You can find our organization, Africa Rising Org, Africa Rising Org on Instagram as well as on Twitter. Ladies and gentlemen, remember, we're all here as humanity to find a better way in which we can all live together. The COVID epidemic is here. So many justices that we've been fighting over the years. How far are we gonna continue fighting this in, 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 in our different isolations? I think it's time for humanity to set aside our differences so that we can eliminate our weaknesses and strengthen the strengths that we have from coast to coast. Ladies and gentlemen, we have only one world, one humanity. Let us recognize that we share one destiny. Together we stand, divided we fall. Signing out, Dabba Mandela. Man, great stuff. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for Endeavor. You made it one of the most memorable, aggressive lives to date. And that's it. Let's go get aggressive. Let's apply something we've learned today. Except if you get circumcised as an adult, don't blame it on me. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.